Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Today, Jeff Wall talks about a personalized approach to managing hypertension. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. Hello, and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about an interesting paper that was just published in the last couple of weeks um, in JAMA that looked at, the, the title I think is a bit misleading, but they're looking at what they call personalized treatment of hypertension. So using antihypertensives and personalized treatment. Now, in my world, that means using pharmacogenomics, right? So, so you know, figuring out the, the uh, genomic profile of a patient and maybe selecting a drug based on that. And that's not really what they did here. So, I mean, it is kind of personalized, but I don't think in the same way that especially pharmacists really think of personalized medicine. Now, that being said, it's, it's an important study and I think does give us some information, especially for our outpatient providers about what is what are some of the ways we can practically uh, start and, and adjust antihypertensives in patients with high blood pressure. So um, it is worth a quick review noting that, you know, hypertension is now one of the leading preventative causes of death in the United States. Um, we sometimes forget that, you know, we, oh, well, cancer is bad and coronary disease is bad. And yeah, that's all, there's no doubt about that. But uh, hypertension is still one of the leading causes of a, of a host of morbidities and mortalities and is vastly undertreated worldwide because again, in many cases, people have absolutely no symptoms until it's too late, right? Uh, the other problem, of course, is that for providers, um, there's literally been a moving target in what blood pressure they should be shooting for in patients. You know, we had uh, quickly, you know, briefly the JNC8 uh, guidelines that came out uh, in the mid-2010s that basically said that 140 over 90 was fine. And then a, a number of studies came out that suggested, no, that was probably too high and that we should actually be much more tight in controlling blood pressure. And so then the, the pendulum kind of swung back the other way. You know, the, there's a lot of uh, clinical questions about how low is too low. Uh, the J-curve of hypertension control is well known. Studies like the on-target study showed pretty conclusively that you actually do get a decrease in mortality as you get tighter and tighter control of blood pressure until you get to a blood pressure that's systolic about 115. And then being up below that, you start to see an uptick in mortality, probably because we're dropping people's blood pressure too low. So, you know, again, what your target really, really kind of plays a role too. Something else that's been studied into the ground is something called clinical inertia. And it, I think it's one of the reasons why in the United States, we have such poor uh, target control of people with blood pressure. Uh, we start somebody on monotherapy, they seem to be tolerant tolerating it okay, it drops their blood pressure a few points, and we usually stop there because we're like, well, you know, they're tolerating it okay, and they're taking it, and their pressure's better now than it was before, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rock the boat, basically, and that's the, I don't think that is uh, the intentional strategy of most primary care clinicians, but it's been demonstrated numerous times in studies that that's exactly what happens. And, um, you know, uh, I think there's also some evidence uh, actually from uh, someone I know here in the University of Iowa, uh, Barry Carter, who I think is since retired, maybe not, uh, but he was, you know, one of the gods of hypertension. And, and, and he published a, a, a real nice paper a few years ago that looked at the combination of a pharmacist and a physician in a hypertension clinic and found that uh, you were more likely to get, get to goal with fewer side effects. So, so bottom line, is that, you know, yeah, hypertension is, you know, they call it the 
silent epidemic, and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, with the new guidelines, about 50% of Americans actually have hypertension now, because remember, really anything over 130, over 80 is going to be considered hypertension. So again, that, that drive the number of patients who, who have that diagnosis. And it's not like we can't treat hypertension, right? There's about 12 different classes of antihypertensives, um, and we have five, four or five classes of antihypertensives that have been demonstrably shown not only to get the numbers better, but to actually improve heart outcomes, right? To decrease stroke, to decrease heart attacks, to improve kidney function, to, you know, preserve eyesight and all those sort of things. So, so again, it's, you know, it's not like we can't treat hypertension. It's that um, I think we're afraid to cause too many problems in patients. We, we know patients are routinely non-adherent to antihypertensives. Uh, I remember a paper that suggested that it's between 50 and 70% of all patients who receive any, uh, their first antihypertensive stop taking it within two years because they don't have any symptoms, right? So, you know, it, it, you know hypertension may, you know, many people may think, well, yeah, it's not that big of a, of a disease state. I can handle hypertension with both hand ties by my back. Well, obviously we're not because in the United States, it's estimated that one in four women and one in five men with hypertension are not reaching, uh, they're the only ones who are reaching their targets. So, you know, again, that says 20, 20 to 25% of Americans are reaching their goal hypertension. So for a, such an easy disease to treat, we certainly don't seem to be doing a very good uh, job of it in the United States. And I think one of the issues uh, is there's, let's face it, a lot of variability in how well X hypertension works in Y patient, right? You know, in some patients, you can get a dramatic response from uh, thiazide diuretics. But in other patients, you don't really get much of a response at all. And that's the true with, with almost all of the different hypertensive classes, but particularly the four classes that have been shown to decrease heart outcomes. So we, we're talking about ACE inhibitors, ARBs, um, uh, calcium diuretic calcium channel blockers, and thiazide diuretics. Those are the four drugs that are recommended in the uh, 2017 guidelines as, as your first-line drug in most patients because, again, they've been shown to actually decrease numbers as well as heart outcomes. So then the question comes up, well, I've started a patient on, let's say, lisinopril, and I did not get them to goal. Uh, what should I do? You know, should I add a second drug? Should I go up on the dose? Uh, additionally, the, the 2017 guidelines talk about in patients with, with blood pressures over 140, over 90, you should, you should probably go ahead and start two drugs right out of the gate uh, because you're almost certainly going to need two drugs to get them under control. So why wait three, six, nine, 12 months to make that decision? Start earlier, get their blood pressure under control earlier. And again, that adds another level of complexity to, to prescribing medications for hypertension. So to answer that question comes this paper that was published in JAMA called the physics study done in Sweden. And the, the, the goal of the study was to quantify what, again, what they call personalized medicine strategies. And, and again, I want to caution people that this has nothing to do with pharmacogenomics, but basically to use uh, patients in kind of an interesting trial design, which we're going to talk about, to use different combinations of antihypertensives to look at, it, at patient variability within themselves and then compare that to other patients and their variability, thereby trying to get an, a good idea that, okay, you know, of if I start X Y if I start X antihypertensive in this uh, patient and they don't get a good response to it, what's the next best antihypertensive based on what the first one was? So, for example, if they were started on a thiazide 
didn't get a good response, what's my next move that's most likely to get a response? If they were started on a calcium channel blocker and didn't get a good response, what's my next move to get, a, to get the best possible response? And I think that's what they're really trying to say as far as personalized therapy. Again, it's the thing called the physics study. So they used a repeated crossover design. So again, kind of an interesting study in that they took a fairly large number of patients, about 1,700 patients, and uh, they had all had either had just been diagnosed with hypertension or had been on monotherapy for hypertension, for, for known hypertension, and basically used repeated testing of different combinations of, of, of antihypertensives to see, again, if, if you didn't respond to a monotherapy, what combo therapy after that would be most likely to give you the biggest drop in systolic blood pressure. So again, that's the point. And they, again, used their patients as, as their own control. So there was a washout period, then they tried another one. There was a washout period, then they tried another combo. And then they also looked at patients who received other combos compared those together as well. So a very interesting study to do um, and a pretty complex one as, as we'll talk about. Inclusion criteria, uh, you had to be over age 40 and less than 75. You had to be either previously diagnosed with hypertension with a blood pressure between 140 and 159 within five years prior to the start of the study. You had to be on monotherapy. Uh, you had to be untreated pharmacologically or just be on monotherapy at the very first uh, visit of the study. Or if patients who'd never had a diagnosis of hypertension, who on an office systolic blood pressure visit were between 140 and 79, and a diastolic below 109 at visit two, they were obviously given consent to participate in the study, and they had to have access to a smartphone because that was how they were going to monitor the safety and all that other stuff as well. So they excluded basically a ton of patients. And if, if there's going to be a problem with this study, one of the biggest problems is going to be generalizability because basically they excluded almost every other disease state. So basically any evidence of, of serious hematological, respiratory, immunologic, renal, hepatic, gastroenterological, endocrinological, metabolic, neurological, malignant, psychiatric, or other diseases. So basically, these were completely healthy patients who had hypertension. They also excluded patients with a his, uh, who uh, were on lithium therapy or gout because thiazide diuretics are going to mess with that, as we know. They uh, were excluded if they had previous or present arterial occlusive diseases. So you couldn't be in the study if you had any known coronary disease or, or heart failure. Uh, if they had diabetes, so again, another big exclusion problem. Uh, they excluded people with diabetes uh, requiring insulin or oral glucose lowering drugs. Um, patients with a history of angioedema. Uh, patients with uh, who had uh, drug dependence or alcoholism because they figured they wouldn't be they wouldn't be adherent. So again, a long, long list of patients, which I think is, is significantly going to affect the the generalizability of the study. Then they did use combo pills, right? So they had they had numerous different combinations that they, that they wanted to to look at in the study. And what they basically found when it all was said and done was they had uh, six combinations that they wanted to use. The first was uh, amlodipine and candesartan. So so uh, calcium channel blocker and ARB, amylodipine and lisinopril, so calcium channel blocker and ACE inhibitor, hydrochlorothiazide and amylodipine, hydrochlorothiazide and candesartan, hydrochlorothiazide and lisinopril, and then one that kind of surprised me because we don't see this done really anymore, uh, lisinopril and candesartan. So they did have one arm of this combo therapy where they combined uh, an ACE and an ARB. We know that's not a good idea in patients with chronic kidney disease because of the incidence of, of hyperkalemia, and I'm surprised they actually used that combination. But that was one of the six combinations 
that they did use in the study. Doses, so what, how they did this is they did over-encapsulated doses with these different combination therapies to maintain blinding. And so uh, they would over-encapsulate basically uh, candesartan and, and lisinopril or candesartan and amlodipine or hydrochlorothiazide, whatever tablets we're talking about, they would just combine the two and then over-encapsulate them as, as one capsule, basically. Doses were about what you'd expect. Um, they targeted 16 milligrams of candesartan, 20 milligrams of lisinopril, 10 of amlodipine and 25 of hydrochlorothiazide. They usually started at half those doses for the first couple of weeks and then went up to if the patient was tolerating things going up to the target dose from weeks three to nine. After uh, week nine, they then had a washout period of anywhere from seven to nine weeks and then were given the next combo drug in that list. And they had, they had a, a hierarchical list of, okay, you started this combo, then we went to combo B, then we go to combo C, or the next patient started on combo B and then we went to combo C, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they, what, there was a two week run-in period of just regular placebo capsules. Again, I think to, to try and monitor uh, adherence. And I think that was completely reasonable. And then again, had this kind of overlap as we were talking about. Now, a question you may be asking yourself is, is seven weeks enough about washout? And I, that's something I have a question about myself. I would think that for most drugs, yes, that's probably going to be enough of a washout. But, you know, you do have to wonder, you know, what, you know, especially patients who maybe finished right at the end and then had a minimum of seven weeks. Yes, you think most of the drug would be washed out and uh, the, the, the patients would, would return to their baseline blood pressure. But for example, we know that thiazide diuretics is antihypertensive effects can and linger on for several weeks. I mean, again, you may not get full uh, effect, but you do have some lingering uh, effect of hydrochlorothiazide over time. So I think uh, wondering about washout is something to think about. Uh, how do they measure blood pressure? I will give them credit. They did 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring throughout. So um, they, I think they did, did a, you know, that would be the, the really the way to do this would be to really, you know, take a look at them. And, and then they just did, they did measurements of, of two per hour and particularly 14 measurements between 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. basically. The primary outcome was not hard outcomes. It was just literally decreased in systolic blood pressure. Um, they, in fact, didn't uh, really look at almost anything else. So, so really, their only outcome was, was lowering the numbers. They didn't look at any hard outcomes like cardiovascular disease, strokes, stuff like that. They did mention they were monitoring safety, but they didn't go into much detail about that. And they noted that uh, patients would, would have a, an electronic diary that they could report side effects or obviously report side effects at the visit. But again, they didn't do, a, in my opinion, very good job of how they were going to do that or reporting them, things like that. So really, this, this study was really focused much more in on getting the numbers better, depending on what combination. The statistics were, as you might imagine, very, very complex, and I had to read them through a couple of times, and I'll be honest that, you know, they started getting into the, into the weeds, and I had to start looking up things about how they were, how they were approaching this sort of thing. Uh, suffice it to say that, that it was a complex model that they had to use since they were using, they were comparing different combinations together. So again, you're going to lose the ability to find a difference if one exists. So alpha is going to go down as, as you keep doing pairwise comparisons. Uh, they tried to 
account for that by uh, um, doing, you know, all these kind of regression analyses. And uh, they, they did, you know, multiple models looking at the different combinations to see if they were going to get the same number every time. Uh, and again, I'm, I won't belabor that, but, but I, you know, from my reading, the statistics seemed to make sense. And I knew that this was going to be a, a very complex study where it, it would be, it was going to be difficult to do to find the power they would need to find to show a difference between them. As far as baseline characteristics, uh, they were, you know, about what you'd expect. Median age of men were about 55. Of women was actually lower, about 45. Median age was 64. Um, again, very small numbers. Again, these were patients who were all pretty much, a, you know, uh, had no other comorbidities. They, they were, were basically normal except their high blood pressure. Uh, body mass index mean was 29. So, I mean, you know, maybe a little bit smaller than you might expect in the United States, but probably about where you would see. Their uh, baseline blood pressure um, at the clinic was uh, 150 over 87, and at randomization was about the same, 154 over 89. They did look at ambulatory blood pressure monitoring before going in. You know, we know now that there's a you know a, a high incidence of, of white coat hypertension, but in this case, they didn't see a big difference. Systolic only went down to a mean of about 145. About 62% of patients were on monotherapy as they were being enrolled into the study. Um, they did look at smoking and alcohol, and those numbers were actually very, very uh, small. They also looked at physical activity, and uh, the bottom line was, was that uh, the vast, vast majority of patients had you know, moderate leisure time physical activity, um, and about 30% of patients did report some level of exercise. So that's kind of how that went. This, the results are going to be interesting. We're going to talk about those right after this work from CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing, and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So we're back talking about the physics study, which is basically a, a study that's, that's going to try and give us uh, the primary care provider an idea of if this patient is failing monotherapy what combination therapy is most likely to give me the biggest decrease in their systolic blood pressure and thereby getting them to goal. So again, remember, they looked at different pairwise combinations and, and in patients, you know, they would give them a combo, they would have a washout and they'd give them another combo and they wanted to look at the difference in blood pressure there and see if they could find a statistically significant difference. And in fact, they did do that. So for example, um, in patients who were on amlodipine candesartan, right? So, so they had about uh, 263 patients who started on amlodipine and candesartan, and then that was their first medication in this uh, crossover study. And then after time, it was, uh, they would switch to something else. So it was their first medication in about 8% of patients. It was the second medication, about 12% of patients on down the line. What did they find is they found that after the first medication, their blood pressures went down from that mean of, of kind of 150 down to a mean of about 130. So, so about a 20, a 20 point drop in blood pressure. And then they basically looked at if it was the second med, what was the third med, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The combination in the end, when they uh, looked at amlodipine candesartan, compared to some of the other ones, they found that the variation in difference was about 8.6 millimeters of mercury. So in other words, you could expect about an 8.6 drop in millimeters of mercury if you went from monotherapy to amlodipine candesartan as your first, as your first line. 
and they found similar numbers, uh, at least as the second line drug, and then it kind of dropped off after that. And that, that was kind of a recurring theme with all of these, is that if you used most of these combinations as first or second line, you got pretty much the same bang for your buck as far as decrease of systolic blood pressure. But if you were starting to reach for it as a third or fourth line, as you might imagine, you were getting less and less uh, a decrease in blood pressure. So for the amyloid and can canisartan, they had, a, again, a, a decrease of about 8.6 for uh, amylodipine lisinopril, they saw a decrease in about 8.9. For hydrochlorothiazide uh, amylodipine, they saw a decrease of only about 2.4, so that was kind of interesting. For hydrochlorothiazide candesartan, they saw a decrease of about 7. For hydrochlorothiazide lisinopril, they saw a decrease of about 8. And this lisinopril candesartan group, I, I, I'm glad that they only saw a decrease of about 1.6. So it was actually the worst of them, which is makes sense, again, how the drugs work pharmacologically, but also because I, I would be nervous that we'd start wanting to use those sort of things. So that was, you know, the inpatient variability, but then they wanted to take a look across the different patients who got them to see if there was any overall difference. And, and what they found was when it was all said and done that the best treatment versus fixed treatment when you take a look at different patients across the study and which one they started and which one they switched to was that you'd see a, an extra benefit of the most with amlodipine candesartan, amlodipine lisinopril, and hydrochlorothiazide lisinopril. So of those across all comers, depending on whether it was the first drug, second drug, or, or any other combination, these were the medica uh, medication combos that were most likely to get a biggest drop in stock blood pressure on the order of about three and a half to four across the board. So basically the authors suggest that although for a first combo, there really wasn't a whole lot of difference between individual patients and individual patient variability across populations that amyloid and can canisartan, amyloid and lisinopril, and hydrochlorothiazide lisinopril seem to be the ones that combinations that you're most likely to see a benefit from. So yeah, you know, again, kind of a complex result I think the, the, the first thing that can that tells us if you're on monotherapy, with the exception of ACEs and ARBs combinations, it probably does not matter which combination you're using. You're going to get numbers fairly similar to each other if it's used as its first medication. But as you go down the line, or if you want to get the most bang for your buck right out of the gate, you're probably going to want to, going to, want to lean toward and, and uh, calcium channel blocker ARB combo, calcium channel blocker ACE combo, hydrochlorothiazide ACE combo, which seemed to be the drugs that gave us the, the biggest uh, lowering systolic blood pressure. Now, fortunately, all those exist. They all exist as generics, which is great and, and should be fairly inexpensive. So, you know, basically what these guys, when you take a look at, 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 their, at their discussion, you know, they note that again, they felt like they had done a, as good a job as they could have to do this crossover study to try and find the answer about, again, so-called personalized medicine. They note that again, largely within these pairs, the choice of therapy for your first line drug was about the same for all of them, but compared to the other drugs with not just within patient, but across patients, the choice was important with large games to be made by personalizing the choice between candesartan versus amylodipine and, and, and for choosing lisinopril versus amylodipine. So, you know, bottom line was those combos seem to have the, 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 the best 
a decrease in blood pressure and maybe the ones you'd want to reach for first. So they, in safety, you know, they, they noted that there wasn't a whole lot of safety differences between the different combinations, but they really didn't go into a whole lot of detail about that. So there's not much to say. They basically just say in the study, no significant ADRs were noted between the groups. So <laughs> that's, that, that's about all, all we can, can, can really gain, glean from that. So, you know, you know, what do you kind of take from this? If you're a, if you're a primary care doc, I think first up, I think we, you know, this does show that I think we need to be more aggressive and consider two drug therapy earlier on than we previously have if somebody shows up with a with a particular with a blood pressure of greater than 150 that uh, monotherapy is, is is very unlikely to to result in getting those patients to target so using a combination makes sense does it matter which combination you know in the cosmic scheme of things probably not because again the numbers themselves the systolic blood pressure endpoint numbers were largely similar but when you take a look at, at individual patients you got the most drop in patients who, again, who are on calcium channel blockers, ARBs, calcium channel blockers, ACEs, uh, lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide. So, um, you know, the, 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 the amount of drop was highest in those patients. And so that's my opinion, probably what you're going to want to reach for first, especially if there's no contraindications or, you know, they don't have a history of angioedema or anything along those lines. So I think that's the thing to really take away from the study is that, you know, although, you know, overall blood pressures are going to be at goal, um, individualized patients will seem to benefit more from those three combination medications. Um, I, you know, again, some limitations to the study, they didn't really take into account whatever monotherapy they were on. So, you know, what if somebody came in on an, on a, a calcium channel blocker, came in on ACE, if there was any differences between them, my guess is there'll be a, a secondary analysis that takes a look at that. Uh, they did try to measure an uh, adherence by uh, patients picking up their medications, but of course that doesn't guarantee patients are actually taking their medications. And so that, I think that's another limitation. And of course, I think the biggest limitation is going to be that they basically excluded everybody except those who just had hypertension. And of course, that's just not going to happen, right? I mean, most of your patients are going to have some other common, uh, some other comorbidity that it's going to be maybe a little bit hard to, to, to apply this data. So bottom line, you know, if you've got a patient that you're seeing for the first or second time with hypertension, their blood pressure is above 150. And you're like, yeah, I really probably should start two drugs on you instead of one. Then I think it's completely reasonable to start any of those three combinations, you're probably going to get the most bang for your buck there. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, a second drugs, it doesn't seem to make a, make a big difference at that point or adding a third drug, you know, doesn't seem to be making, it doesn't seem to add that much more. So at that point, I think starting to look for things like secondary hypertension, I think certainly makes sense. So that's it for this week's Game Changers. We'll see you next week, but until then, remember time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.